Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Now, Anna Bartlett Warner in 1860 wrote that poem for a dying child to hear, and then it was uh, a chorus was added to it, and it was set to some music by William Bradbury, and now it's one of the most famous hymns in the world. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And the truth is, we don't need any permission from anyone to read God's Word and God to speak to us through it. But there are some strange ways that we access God's Word, and and we often don't know quite how to access God's Word. So I want to commend a book to you, How to Read the Bible Well by Dr. Stephen Bernhope. It's the best book on reading the Bible that I have read for a very long time. And I have Steve here with me in an interview today, and I hope you'll listen to him as we journey through the book. And I hope most of all you'll consider taking a look at his book. So... It's great to be here with Steve Burnhope, Dr. Stephen Burnhope. So I'm Jason Clark. Um, I'm a lead mentor of the Doctor of Ministry and Leadership and Global Perspectives at Portland Seminary. Uh, Being a pastor of a church uh, planted on the edge of London, and you guys all know my coordinates. But it's great for me to have Steve Burnhope with me today. Um, just to set the scene with Steve. Um, Steve was uh, a senior underwriter at Lloyd's of London, some of you have heard of. Now, that's important when we get to talking about context later on. Steve's not just an academic. Um, he's actually done other things in life. Um, so, Steve, you've got an MA in Biblical Interpretation that you did while you were working, and then you took on a church a few years ago full-time, um, and I think, you won't blow your own trumpet, but I will, that doubled in size. It was a good-sized church that doubled in size, and you've just handed the church on to uh, in healthy condition to another senior pastor, so you've got great work experience, life experience, a pastor in a, in a church, and you've always been involved in church. Um, and then a few years ago, you completed a PhD in biblical and systematic theology. So uh, I'm, I'm exhausted just telling everyone who you are and what you've done the last few years. But we're here today to talk about your book. Um, and I wanted to set the scene for people listening that your book is not just some academic enterprise. Um, of course, it's academic and it's based on your it's based on your research. But it's funded by that life in church of bringing the Bible alive for yourself, for other people, um, and all that time that you spent before you were a pastor. And I just think for people listening, that adds to the richness of this. This is not just a theory book about the Bible. This is this is a book that's got both ends of the spectrum. You know, the, the best research behind it for getting into scripture and the lived experience of life in a church. So we're going to talk about your book today, Steve, How to Read the Bible Well, what it is, what it isn't, and how to love it, in brackets, again. I love that title. So um, like you, I think you said to me once, it does, it does what it says on the tin. And I had the privilege of writing the foreword for this book after I encouraged you, which I noticed you put in the foreword, I, um, sorry, in your introduction, that I hassled you to write it. I just thought I was encouraging you, but we'll, we'll, we'll go for hassle. Um, and for, again, for you guys listening to this or watching this, um, it was in listening to Steve recall some materials um, for his church and for church leaders about the Bible that made me think so many more people need to hear this. Now, I have read many, many books. I've read many books about the Bible, um, and Steve's teaching was just so good. I did hassle him and encourage him. So we're here today, um, newly in print, how to read the Bible well. Here's my copy. And uh, nice cover and hardback coming out. So, 
What we're going to do, Steve, is we're just going to have a walk through your book. So first question, other than me hassling you, why did you write the book? Tell us more about you, what you hope it would achieve for people that would read it. Well, I think probably, Jace, the main genesis of it was the fact that when I was pastor, I used to do some series, I started to do some series called The Big Questions. And those are big questions about the Bible and mm. about faith. Obviously, the two go together. And I found, which I didn't particularly expect, but I found that they were by far the most popular series. And people would, would want to watch the videos again and so mm. on. And it, it made me realize that there's a lot of people out there, ordinary thinking Christians, for whom they, they've got a lot of questions and they've never been too sure whether they're allowed mm. to ask them or not. Because the nature of evangelical faith is that the questions aren't always that mm. welcome. And, you know, sometimes good questions uh, get responded to with a kind of, well, we shall never understand that. If we could understand that, we would be God. Uh, you know, we just need yeah. to have faith, mm. um, whatever that means. And, and so I, I think people have a thirst to understand more about the Bible and more about the God that we see in the Bible and more about how God and the Bible interact in mm. our lives and uh, that really i think was probably the start of actually wanting to put that mm. into a book so you say you were so you were trialing this material we're well, not trialing it you're already doing something in church and it was popular um yeah i think i remember you would send me your your notes through um from sundays on the topics and i remember looking at the the views online and seeing how many people out you know in the church and outside the church were were watching them so it's, it's wonderful that you've trialed this out in a real church that led to you know well i assume growth and faith uh, based on how the church has grown and the interest in it it's strange isn't it let's just i mean let's just pause there that whole issue of asking questions and i, I sometimes mm. tell people in my church and anyone that i get to teach as well you know that serious questions people that are serious about sorry serious christians that take their faith seriously will have serious questions and that that god is not yeah. afraid of us and that you know we're, mm. we're supposed to um you know we're about faith seeking understanding and yet somewhere along the line we can yeah. equate asking questions with something being wrong with us can't we yeah absolutely i mean you think about how young kids toddlers are so irritating <laughs> at times because they keep asking <laughs> questions and and yet that's part of growing up and it's part of yeah. how we learn as well and you know i think you know jesus uh, said that the most important commandment was that we should love the lord our god absolutely mm -hmm. but how not just with heart and soul but with mind and strength as well and uh, how do we love god with our mm -hmm. mind well, one way is we ask good questions to find good answers and then we share them with other people brilliant so questions i've got for you we're just gonna we'll literally take us through the book i mean one of the things i like about you personally steve you're not just just a friend but you you write so well i mean i have to read a lot for what i do for church and teaching and speaking and <laughs> some people just don't write very well at all but you write concisely clearly um you tell people what you're going to do you do what you say you're going to do um so for anyone listening to this is thinking gosh this book's going to be hard to read i mean it, it will be food for thought as you read it and it will it will stretch you but it's it's so wonderfully readable um, and, and it then lends itself to the questions. So the questions I'm going to ask you will give us a walk through the book and for anyone listening to it. So let's start with the basics, as you do. 
what is the Bible and why do we need to know? <laughs> well, I mean, in a way, how we approach the Bible is driven by what we think it is in mm. the first place. And how we find God in it and through it is impacted by what we think it is. So um, the, the thing that I think we've got to get over is a, a fear of the word interpretation. Because some people hear the word interpretation and they think what that means is interpreting mm. it away or twisting its meaning or you know, not just taking it on its um, face value mm. or whatever. But the reality is that we never hear, process, read anything without mm. interpreting it. Everything is interpreted to us. It's a little bit like, uh, so we're all, we're all biblical interpreters because we're always interpreting mm. what we read. We're also all theologians because we all have thoughts about God expressed in words, theologos. So the only question is where we're getting our ideas from and whether they're any good or not. And the same thing is true with biblical interpretation. We're all interpreters. The only question is whether we're doing well or not. And I think that that's really what the book is, is getting at in the title, is how do we read? How do we interpret mm. well? And, and notice that it doesn't say, you know, how you should interpret in, in a sort of a telling yeah. sense. It's kind of saying, let's think about how to do it well, or perhaps better, let's think about how to do it yeah. better. And, uh, and, you know, just try and um, work yeah. better with the text. I mean, we'll get on to this, you know, it's a while now since I became a Christian at 17, but, you know, I'd never read the Bible. I mean, I knew that I'd heard of an Old, Old Testament New Testament, so I just thought there were two books. <laughs> and then, of course, you know, quickly realised, someone says, well, actually, there's 66 books in total. Well, yeah. if you're a Protestant. Yeah. And, um, you know, and then they're all different kinds of books, you know, hmm. prophecy and story and epistolary and gospels and, you know, and just what that means you know for when you pick mm. it up and reading it some of that mm. initial advice i got was you know just know what the bible is and what you're reading helps you to engage with it because some of it is straightforward mm. and some you need to know something don't you something differently um, or like an orientation sure. before you can really open it up mm. and that's what you're doing aren't you in that chapter you've got a great chapter on on what the bible is um so you start there and then you move on to a chapter with an intriguing title, The Word of God and the, or the Words of the People. The Word of God or the Words of the People. What's that chapter all about? Well, I guess let's start with this phrase, the Word of God. OK, so we, we believe the Bible by faith to be the Word of God. Marvellous. Mm. Uh, what does that mean? So the, the key the, the key in that phrase is really those last two words, of mm. God. So clearly we believe that the Bible is not just a book, which is where the word Bible comes from, but we believe it's a holy Bible, in other words, a sacred text as well mm. as just a text. The question is, how does God interact with that text in some special way? We have virtually nothing in the Bible itself that tells us about that. We have just uh, one verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, which literally means God breathed mm. it. So that takes us a, a little bit uh, along the journey, but not terribly far. And then we get these ideas that we've been told about how we have to believe the Bible and how it is timeless truth. Uh, all of this is in scare quotes, by the way. Um, how many statements of faith that we 
that we sign, um, maybe close our eyes and sign, um, use words like inerrant or infallible. They talk about the, the text being authoritative and us recognizing its supreme authority and so on for our lives and our faith and, and conduct. And, and all of these ideas are somehow bound up with what we mean by the Bible as yeah. the word of God. But what does that actually mean mm. in practice? And to come back to your, your mm. question, um, clearly there is something of God in it, which makes it somehow uh, touched by the divine, but also it comes to us mm. through people. People actually wrote it. Ordinary people, lots of people, 40 plus mm. people. And uh, it's really interesting, I think, final point, really interesting that Jesus chose not to leave us anything that he personally wrote. And if he had, we could, of course, have made that into a canon within mm. the canon. I mean, his brother James did, after all, his disciple mm. Peter did. So it wouldn't have been beyond the wit of man to have had Jesus uh, write something called the Gospel yeah. of Jesus. And that would have been very clear what was mm. the word of God in that context. But for some mm. reason, God chose only to mediate that word to us through mm. people. So the big challenge for us is how does the fact that it's the word of God and the word of people, the story of God and the story of people, how do they come together within mm. the one text? I mean, each of these questions I ask you could be topics on their own. And they are. They're in the book. So if you want to dig into them, you can go to the book. But I'll just offer a quick comment before we move on to the, to the next question. I was just thinking about how we approach a th not... <laughs> Not infallibility. You and I are not infallible. Our kids, when they talk about us, don't talk about the infallible word of their father. Um, but <laughs> just as human beings, which we are in relationship with God and with each other, when we talk about each other and someone says, what did your dad say? We don't expect to repeat verbatim with a timestamp, you know, in a literal way, what someone said. And then when parents cross-reference with each other, what did you say? What did you not say? I mean, there's some, there's some, you, a bit of verification goes on in terms of what you were actually saying. But most of the time, you don't turn into a forensic court case of, well, I didn't use the word a there or the or at or, um, yeah, and it's, it's interesting how we've just got, just lose sight of or have any confidence that God's word is inspired by him and authoritative, but it comes to us through other people. That's what I'm hearing you say. And yet that's how we live ordinary everyday life with each other, don't we? Yeah, well, that's true. And there's another element following that same metaphor, Jace. There's, there's also another element, which is um, if uh, I hear someone talking about you and something that you have said or, or done or whatever, uh, because I know you, I'm going. I'm likely to say, "Well, that's not something I think Jason would have said, mm. actually." So I think you must have misunderstood it, because that is not consistent with the nature and character of the Jason that I know. Uh, what he, I think, would have meant by that is this. So I think maybe, although you've you've um, you, you've passed that on as faithfully as you know mm. how, and maybe even it's not wrong in terms of the words, but I know what mm. he meant by that. And so there's an element there, I think, as well, mm. that we, when it comes to back to this word interpretation, yeah. we often read the Bible with a, a lens that is already set in terms of what kind of God we mm. think he is. And that impacts mm. how we read things. So, for example, if I take a, an extreme yeah. example, um, if we think that he is a God who is mostly angry mm. with us, or a God who is mostly focused on mm. sin, then we will think of him differently than if we think... He's a God who 
absolutely is characterized by mm. his love for us and his desire to transform us and to transform our world. So it's all about the lenses yeah. that, that we use. And another element, of course, that comes into that is what we've already been told, the stuff we've already heard, the stuff we've yeah. picked up from sermons or from mm. whatever, uh, all of which impacts how we interpret, how we read not only the Bible, but the God uh, reflected mm. in the Bible. So you've got a chapter on talking about approaching the Bible as a box set. What does that mean? <laughs> well, various people have have um, tried, um, presented ideas on how we can think of the Bible story as one coherent overall narrative from cover mm. to cover. Scott McWright uh, has, has done that. Tom Wright has yeah. done that. Brian McLaren has done that, the one I particularly mm. like and uh, steal lots, lots of ideas from. Um, and really what I'm wanting to start with there is to say, look, let's think about this thing as a story. So 75% of the Bible is story or narrative, technical term for it. Actually, only about 10% of the Bible is what we would call propositions or statements of truth or fact mm. or whatever. So the vast majority of it mm. is story, and the whole thing is a story with stories mm. within it. And that causes us to think about, well, actually, how do stories teach? We can sort of guess how facts and propositions teach, but how do stories teach? And what's a, what's a faithful way of interpreting, interpreting stories? And, and what marks do we use in order to make those stories um, biblical, if you mm. like, in terms of what, what they're telling us? So what I did was to say, OK, Lynn and I are, my wife Lynn and I are very keen on box sets, especially in lockdown. And uh, that seems to be the, the kind yeah. of thing. So I thought, well, what if we thought about the Bible as a box set in three yeah. seasons? So we've got season one, the Old Testament, season two, the New Testament, and season three, the one that mm. we're in now. And how that might give us some sort of uh, overall mm. picture on how the Bible hangs together as a story. And then we can hang the different things we find in the Bible on a place mm. or a part of that story, a season or an episode. Mm. Yeah. I was going to use the word meta narrative for anyone who's interested listening. So it's part of what we're talking about, isn't it? Like the bigger, the bigger narrative under which all the bits of the story hang together. Is that the sort of thing that you're, it's precisely precisely the right word, but it's not a very postmodern yeah. friendly word. So I think we have to be careful about how we use yeah. words like that. So, box sets. Lovely metaphor. And again, if you want to find out more about the idea of box sets and how that will help you with the Bible, get Steve's book. Right, my next question. Well, it touches on what you've already said, isn't it? You talked about our view of, of God. So um, you've got a, a, a chapter on whether the angry God of the Old Testament is the same as the loving New Testament one. In, in other words, you, you, uh, the thorny issue that's been around since the New Testament um, was codified and put together, is the God of the New Testament the same as the God of the Old Testament? Um, and how we can reconcile um, both the Old and New Testament together. So what, do you, what, do you, what are some of the major challenges that you try to address in the book about that? Well, um, where do we start on that one? I mean, we wouldn't be the first to wonder how we reconcile those two apparent pictures of God. 
Um, and I'm sure many Christians grapple with that, many Christians in the pews, which is why we tend to ignore the Old Testament. We tend to start with Jesus because that's easier. And, and in a sense, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but it only takes us so far. And to cuddle a very long story short in the book, because there's quite a lot of thought that needs to yeah. go into this. It doesn't lend itself to, to soundbiting. But uh, I think what we see in the Bible is um, the story of people discovering what God is like. Go right back to early days, to Moses, Moses' conversation with God at the burning bush. He says something along the lines of, um, which God are you? What's your name? Who do I say you are to these people you asked me to go and talk uh, um, to about you? And and that understanding that Moses had is not the same as the understanding that David had, not the understanding that John the Baptist had, and, and so on. But we see within the scriptural story an unfolding understanding or a development in people's understanding of what God is like. And we see them getting him right at times, mm-hmm. And we see him, I would say, getting him wrong at times. And I think the text, Old Testament in particular, but but the whole of the Bible is inviting Mm. us to do what uh, good Jews would do and do midrash Mm. on it and debate it and argue about it and say, what is this text trying to tell us? How were people seeing God within this text, within this story? And, of course, cut a long story short, we... We, we fast forward mm. to Jesus, and then we see the New Testament telling us that this is what God mm. is like. This is um, what God looks like in human form in a way that we can relate to him and understand him. This is what God sounds like. This is the way God treats people. This is the way God welcomes people, loves people, cares for people, and so on. And because God has never changed and, and will never change in terms of nature mm. and character, Jesus is telling us, Jesus is a lens for us understanding what God is like and what God has always been like. Therefore, to the extent that in the Old Testament we see or we interpret things and think that it's showing us a different kind of God, then someone has misunderstood something along the way in those elements. Because Jesus is the the exact image, Mm -hmm. the express representation of what God is and always has been like. And if I could just add, from a pneumatological perspective, mm. it's also what the Holy Spirit mm. is like. So if we think we, the Holy Spirit is doing things that are inconsistent with something Jesus would do, I think we have every reason to say, well, that may well not yeah. be the Holy Spirit doing it, because he's the Spirit of Jesus. They all share the same nature yeah. and character and plans yeah. and purposes. And again, you know, I've been a Christian a long time and had to work through some things myself. But if I, you know, cast my mind back, you know, can remember having to think, how do I, how does the Old Testament, New Testament square up? How do some of those difficult passages, you know, ideas of fulfillment, continuity, discontinuity in Jesus is like, yeah, that was then, but this is now, you know, but something, yes, that was then and that is now. Or, do you know, it, and once you, you know, the, the way that you've unpacked it, it is one of the challenging things for people. And you do it so well in the book. Because I'm aware of people often go to extreme because it's easier to go to extremes, isn't it? You know, with the, well, you yeah. know, well, which Marcion did. You, if you know, if, yeah. for people listening to this, knowing their church history, well, you know, that's a different God. You know, completely different. There's this New Testament one. Just forget the Old Testament. And the, the early church went, no, we can't do that. We have to do the work of understanding the continuity and fulfillment. 
Um, but then with those hard passages, you can go, well, you know, some people get to that place, don't they, where they go, well, you know, that's just the way God is. He is angry and judgmental. And if you don't like it, yeah. you know, and there are forms of Christianity like that. Um, so you've got to yeah. f- you've got to find a way. Otherwise, you just end up with a you know limited canon. I'll just pick the verses that I like and avoid the ones that are a bit difficult. But the, the difficult ones can go beyond being difficult, in my experience, and become very rich and profound once you understand mm. those things mm. that you've been talking about, Steve. So again, for anyone listening, you know, if you've got any questions, you're thinking, oh, yeah, there are bits. How does that make sense from there to here? You you do it so well, and you don't do what most people do out there. You do. I wouldn't say your own thing, because that would be far too novel, but you bring all the best thinking that I've ever heard and read on it and, and make it deployable by people to to un, to understand that. So thank you for doing that. Right. Let's talk about, I suppose people would say worldview, even though that usually implies just thinking with our heads, but... So talking about context and culture here, aren't we? So understanding what it was like to think, feel, to be Jewish and why that's important, because you do that in the book, in a chapter, that it's important that we understand how people, I mean, this follows on from the last question that we just had, but how people saw the world then, because it's the issue of hermeneutics, isn't it? We have to understand how people interpret things so that we can interpret them better now. You know, and we know, I mean, I, you know, I've only got to, well, both my, all my grandparents are dead, but I've only got to talk to them about how they saw the world 60 years ago and realise they saw things very differently. <laughs> and if I don't understand mm. that, some things don't make sense when, you, when you're trying to, 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 to interpret. So, yeah, tell us what you do in, in that chapter and what's at stake with understanding the Jewish worldview. I mean, this is absolutely critical, Jace, really, to to interpretation, because mm. one of the base principles for hermeneutics, biblical interpretation, is that a text cannot mean or be saying something mm. now that it was not meaning and saying yeah. then. That's the very and first question. For a lot of people to... listening, this is oh. worth repeating, because it is so foundational and fundamental, and, well... You think it is, I think it is, and just about every biblical scholar I know says it is. So let, let's repeat it, because if you've got this one tool, it helps so much. So repeat it for us. Okay. So the reason that um, we need to understand how the original author would have seen what he was saying and the original audience would have heard what he was saying is because it cannot mean now something different to what it yep. meant then. And I'm not, not talking here about prophecy as a genre. That's maybe just slightly different. Just put that to one yeah. side for a moment. But in terms of what it was what it was saying, we need to start yeah. with what did it mean to them. So can we just, and, just let's just translate that into the vernacular for people so they can you know in concept. Yeah. So if you're your average Jewish shepherd, you've got no idea that the world is round, that Australia exists you know of of things that we understand about science and chemistry computers electronics none of those things so you can't possibly think about the world through those things that we think about the world today because they didn't exist then is that that's the kind of thing isn't it yeah yes that's the kind of thing but it goes far beyond that because 
when we get into things like values, mm. so for example, we tend to think a lot in terms of our rights, yep. whereas an ancient world version yeah. of us, and you're quite ancient, Jay, so you probably relate to this a bit better than many of our audience. Sorry, lost you, Steve, you've lost you. Um, is that um, doing your duty was, was more important. Yeah. So we think in terms of, of rights, they thought in terms of mm. duties. We think in terms of the individual, they thought in terms of the group. Uh, there is no way that uh, anyone would have uh, gone against the uh, opinion of the father or of the group, the, the tribe, the community, yeah. the family. Uh, that was seen as a, a, an intrinsic value. And we go through in the book a whole lot of mm. different values and ways of seeing the way the world mm. was, which includes things like the, the role of, uh, of women, mm. uh, which we have to be honest about. It's, it's uncomfortable. Mm. We'd rather read it as a flat reading, as if everything's the same then and now. We'd like to say the Bible's egalitarian, or for some at least complementarian, but it isn't because that was the way people saw the, way, yeah. the world. Uh, and worldview is quite hard to grasp. It really does need a lot of thinking about if, if someone's never come yeah. across it. But it, essentially, every time we say that something is obvious, mm. it's a worldview speaking. Right. Every time we say something must yeah. be or yeah. can't be, it's a worldview yeah. speaking. Yeah. So obviously, democracy is the right form of government. Uh, obviously, um, women are as important mm. as men. Obviously, women should be allowed mm. to vote yeah. and so on. Obviously, there shouldn't be slavery. But all of these mm. things are, are obvious. None of those were yeah. obvious in the ancient yeah. world. So everything we read in Scripture, we have to read it, understanding that's, mm. how, that, that's how they saw things as being yeah. obvious. Yeah, great. I, I like, um, I talked to you offline before about the you know, C.S. Lewis idea of chronological snobbery, which by which he means lots of things, you know, that we, we, we look back and think that, you know, either we don't understand the past in, in, enough or sufficiently, or we think, well, they just got it all wrong then and I've got it all right now. And, and we can sort of think, well, how could God work with people? at that time in that way surely surely like you say it's obvious that you know women should be able to vote mm. so how could god possibly work with people where women didn't have the right to vote mm. and um you know and and, and the regard to chronological snobbery is one day people 100 years from now will look back at you and i and anyone thinking what was obvious and say how did you think god could mm. possibly work with you with what you thought was obvious you know we just can't <laughs> see because it all makes sense to us now our worldview but other people will look with shock at some of our worldview and go, I can't believe that you guys thought God would be involved in that. I mean, that's the sort of things at stake, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, and, and if we look at the the, the eras of worldviews, mm. if you simplify it to an extreme, we have the ancient worldview yeah. until about the 16th century, mm. and then we have the modern worldview, and, and this is um, primarily or maybe even entirely only in the West, of course, yeah. other parts of the world that didn't have an enlightenment yeah. Yeah. Uh, period. And now we've got the postmodern worldview, which is a kind of hypermodernity. Yeah. So basically, in the history of the world, people have only thought the way that we yeah. do for the past three or four hundred yeah. years, which is pretty astonishing. And therefore, for us to be able to understand an ancient world text, we've got to try to get our, our minds yeah. or, or ourselves into the minds of the people of the time in order to interpret yeah. it 
in other words, to read it well for yeah. the day. I mean, two two ideas I often use when it comes to to, to context and, and, and that we're talking about here is one is just simple households. You know, you can pick up the Bible, read about households in the New Testament and just automatically assume they're homes like ours where people come home and fire up, fire up Netflix to watch TV, can you kick back and cook dinner. Whereas, you know, once you understand what a household of the New Testament was like, it was an economic unit of mm. slaves and servants mm. and citizens and non-citizens. So a household would could be hundreds of people mm. was a household. So suddenly what you're reading, you would read differently once you know that. But a, another, even but a bigger one, um, is the idea of secularism. So with someone like Charles Taylor and, uh, and his, his book on secularism, again, for us, a lot of people assume that thinking about life without reference to God is normal. And yet in the scheme of the whole of human history, up until very recently, last couple of hundred years, all human beings, mm. f until very recently, never talked about life without reference to god or gods spiritual yeah and yeah. we're the unusual ones um, and yet we can assume that yeah all oh, these people they must have been wandering around going is there a god or isn't there no they weren't people didn't do that there, there were different kinds of gods or but it was never do you know what i mean that that one's that one's a mind-blowing one for some yeah. people when they go oh gosh <laughs> Yeah, 100%. And, and this is really Enlightenment thinking. It's what we call the Enlightenment, yeah. the, the age of reason and the age of science. Mm -hmm. and, and, and around the same time, within a sort of 100-year-ish yeah. period, we saw changing all of these things where um, basically the power of religion, the, the role of the Bible uh, became diminished and uh, science became the, the, the touchstone. So people now talk about... Um, as unscientific as an insult. Mm. Um, governments make decisions based upon, you know, we've, we've, we're only following the science. We've consulted the scientists. Scientists mm. are there along you know, on the podium or by the podium yeah. with the, with the politicians. Yeah. Whereas in the old days, it would have been the theologians. They'd have had you and me mm. there um, you know, give advice <laughs> on, on where God was in all of this. Uh, um, but now it's science yeah. and, and religion. You mean Boris Johnson's not giving you a call? Yeah, no, well, I'm time to take his calls, Chase. I'm way too busy. Um, but, you know, that that's how it yeah. would have been in, in the old days, as it were. People want to know what, what's yeah. God saying in this. And yet now we say, oh, no, no, religion is just a personal and private thing and shouldn't be involved in, in the public space at all. That's, that's a worldview shift. And, of course, it's one of the reasons mm -hmm. why emphasis on the authority of the Bible and words like infallible and inerrant yeah. and so on started then to come into statements of faith in Protestantism yeah. in particular um, because there was, it was a rearguard action against yeah. the threat to the Bible and the threat to the church. And it was therefore important to start to emphasize the divine element and the authoritative yeah. element in Scripture yeah. and so on. Sarah, there's whole topics we could talk about, just the exciting thing in psychology and metaphor and what's going on in the world that people are realizing now that we don't mm. make meaning in life by literal words that we can prove are true as if they're in science that's not how human beings make meaning or know that something's real but you, yeah you, oh, yeah. yeah so many topics let's talk about hell because you got <laughs> a chapter on that i worded my question to you i sent them to you in advance what happened because you're an evangelical broadly so am i that's our tradition and a lot of people listening to this are going to be mostly protestant and from an evangelical stable broadly um, we're not debating that term today but 
what has happened to hell and what's at stake with the topic of hell when it comes to the Ooh. Bible? Mm. Well, I, I like to approach from a slightly different direction, which, of course, the book yeah. does, which is to say, let's strip it all back and take all the cultural baggage mm. away. And what we're, we're really talking about is, is the Bible correct in affirming, which I think is very clear, hell's less clear, but I think what is very clear is that the Bible affirms that we will all stand before God one day and give an account of our lives, and that there are consequences mm. to that. God is a God of justice as well as a God of love. The question is, what does that justice mm. look like? And uh, here we've got obviously a, a bit of a worldview thing to deal with as mm. well, because nowadays we tend to think more in terms of rehabilitative justice than we do of punishment mm. injustice. That doesn't mean to say it's not in the Bible, doesn't mean to say that there isn't such a thing as punishment. We've got to think very carefully about how that fits. So when it comes to that accountability mm. and the consequences, one of the reasons why there must be that kind of consequence is because for the people who never get justice in mm. this life, the only way they're ever going to get justice is if God delivers that justice for them. And I think that's really important. Mm. Um, God would not want the perpetrators of evil to get away with it because that would result in no justice mm, to the victims. Yeah. Mm. So then, so what do those consequences look like? Well, the Bible isn't very clear mm. on that. But the difficulty we've got is that we, we have, have like a rucksack on our backs of something called eternal conscious torment. Mm. The medieval idea, we get that from Dante's Inferno yeah. and various uh, medieval paintings and so on. But it's not just that, it's also because in the ancient world up until prison reform about 200 and a bit years ago, all punishment was through physical violence. 200 years ago in England, there were over 200 fences punishable by death. That's why you hear these apocryphal stories of, of um, you know, a, a young boy being hanged for stealing a loaf mm. of bread. And all the punishment was, was of that sort. Punishment was not by prison internment. That's relatively recently in, in, in the world. And, and so, therefore, it was very easy for people to understand mm. Jesus taking the punishment for us and hell being the sort of punishment that we deserve for our unlimited sinfulness. Mm. In that world, it's much harder for people to understand it now. And it's very hard also to get rid of that rucksack of eternal conscious mm. torment that God's going to torture living beings forever in, mm. some, in some sort of eternal way. Yeah, I mean, this comes up so often in evangelism. I found as a pastor with people who are interested, I'm just thinking of two people recently, interested, really interested in Jesus and exploring Christianity, encountering God, but very quickly go, because again, they've seen all the cliches in TVs, movies, mm. or, have, you know, bumped into a, a Christian who's reinforced it to them and gone. But if, if I become a Christian, if that means... I'm agreeing that my, you know, lovely mum has gone to hell. I'm, I'm not sure I can do that. And, and, and it's amazing how I have to start to unpack that with them. Um, so just a, an anecdote with a friend. I said, did your mum ever know anything about Jesus? He went, no, never went to church, never, you know, so we talked about how scripture tells us we're judged on the basis of what we know, not what we don't know. And that was consoling. But then I said, I said, if your if your mum was to meet Jesus, what do you think she would she would have said? And he went, she thought he was wonderful. And I went, well, there you go. 
<laughs> that's the place mm. that's the place to begin um so it's mm. it's such a such a challenging because it's easy to just be black and white on this like all these things isn't it that's a very western thing binary mm. hell is a place that everyone goes to unless you've prayed a prayer to go to heaven when you die or oh it's all ridiculous there can't be a hell at all um and try and resolve it that way but mm. but scripture's not like that um and no, but it's also, yeah. Jason, the, the fact that, that modernity is um, the age of the machine mm. and the science and the formulas and of rules yeah. and causes and effects. And we think very mechanistically mm. and we, we apply that grid to how we understand the mm. Bible. But the Bible is not mechanistic. It's relational. Yes. The story of God is not the story of formulas. Yeah. Faith is not a formula. Yeah. It's a relationship. Yeah. So faith is trust in a person, mm. not something that you try and get a, a, a quantity of to make yeah. you know make your prayers work as magic spells you know yeah. that's not how it works we've got to have a relational <laughs> approach but unfortunately the age of science yeah. and modernity has made us think in those mechanistic yeah. terms and then we've got an equal challenge of post-modernity of which we can't possibly unpack today of how hell's <laughs> deconstructed to the point where it's impossible to understand it relationally um let alone mechanistically um but you you do so well in the book so again another good reason for people to turn to your book and and read that steve because i think people find that really helpful um and then you've got a chapter on we've got our last three or four questions here how and why do we misunderstand who jesus was the chapter you've got about is jesus superman what's that what's that all about what are you trying to do in that chapter I mean, that comes from asking people a question many, many years ago when I first mm-hmm. first uh, did a, I think it was probably a small group or something on, on this subject. Yeah. But I said to people, do you think that Clark Kent and Superman is a good way of explaining to people how Jesus was God and man at the same mm-hmm. time? And uh, typically people say, oh, yeah, that's a, that's a really good way of explaining it. And, of course, that's as, about as heretical yeah. as it comes. <laughs> that's horrible. But, 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 <laughs> yeah, <laughs> indeed. But it, but it actually quite a lot of people think of Jesus yeah. like that as it happens. Yeah. But the, the the challenge is um, how do we deal with this fully God, fully yeah. man thing? And this this is our you know our, our doctrine of Christology, mm. of course. Um, but what does that look mm. like in practice? Now? And what tends to happen, I think, is that um, as Christians who are fighting a secular world, yeah. we tend to want to promote the divine jesus more than we do the human jesus we don't want people to think of him as being too human or in in, in too much in human Mm. terms we want them to understand that he really was Mm. god and and so as a result of that we 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 unbalance the the fully god and the the fully man and and of course his humanity is critical to his to to his work and his person his humanity is critical to the victory because it, it, if he couldn't have failed, if the temptation couldn't have worked, if giving up on his mission couldn't, mm-hmm. have, couldn't have happened, then then that isn't actually a victory. It's a, it's a fix, yeah. right? You know, if, it, if it couldn't have been otherwise, then yeah. uh, there's not much to cheer about, frankly, not much to have a party yeah. in heaven about. So that really is, is, is trying to help people to understand and grasp without diminishing him any, in any way. In fact, quite the yeah. opposite. Um, how Jesus was fully God and fully man, and how Scripture speaks of that. Um, Philippians, Hebrews 2, Hebrews 4, Philippians 2. And 
and try to make that meaningful for people. Yeah. And by the way, I think that that's a very, very important thing to grasp when it comes to thinking of the Bible mm-hmm. as well, because we've got the living word of Jesus, we've got the written word of yeah. Scripture, and I think there's a sense in which fully man, fully God works very well yeah. for us there as well. Well, I mean, there's an intersection between some of these topics of who Jesus was, why he died, and what, what he does for us in that. Um, you know, so atonement, why Jesus died on the cross, and lots of theories on that. Um, but within atonement, to understand it, your Christology, well, who, who was Jesus, and then what happens to us because of it. There's, there's, there's all this intersection of some of these most challenging issues. Um, and again, people for atonement, people would have to go to your other book um, based on your PhD. But you've got some of that woven through here um, in Christology about who Jesus is and, and what he did for us. And you and I have, have talked about Christology over the years. And just, just at a personal level, that the understanding that we come to, that Jesus was fully human, and what that means for us to participate in relationship with him. Like you say, otherwise it's just a mm. sham. It's a, mm. it's a Monty Python, oh, you know, it's mm. all a flesh, you know, it's all a flesh wound. You know, the joke doesn't mean anything. But that Jesus, every step he took was in the in dependency upon the Holy Spirit in the way that he opens for us. And ultimately that's mm. made possible because he participates so fully with us. That's what his crucifixion's about. Mm. And crucifixion is about our participation mm. in this life with Jesus. Suddenly it becomes it becomes so much more than just a prayer to pray to go to heaven when we die, or you know that idea that Jesus has done it all for me. There's nothing for me to do, you know, because he's just he is Superman. So what's the point of me trying to do anything? It's all about participation, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely, Jace. And and of course, another aspect of the sort of Superman thing is um, people will answer questions about how Jesus did things on the basis of well, because he was God, because he was God. And, and they assume all kinds of things, that he knew everything that could be known, that he could have actually split an atom if he had the right equipment. <laughs> you know, or, or he could have just magic it up in yeah. some way, or he could have done open heart surgery or whatever. Yeah. He must have been the world's best musician or the world's strongest man, and all this stuff, because he was yeah. God. And in fact, uh, of course, the, the, really critical mm. to our Christology and our theology is the fact that he did what he did through the anointing and yeah. the power, the empowerment of the Holy yeah. Spirit. Because if he hadn't, if he'd done everything because he was God, then he could hardly have asked us to do the same stuff yeah. himself, uh, yeah. as he did. Yeah. He could hardly say you'll do the same things and greater. Yeah. He could hardly commission yeah. us to do those things um, if we'd need to be God in order to yeah. do it. And so therefore, he's not just a you know a, a kind of an example to us, a Superman, mm. be, but he's actually a role yeah. that the way in which we do the yeah. stuff is the way Jesus did the stuff. Yeah, that's the astonishing thing about jesus he hasn't got superpowers or super strength or laser vision or he's got eyes ears hands mouth you know emotions not not because he couldn't in the sense of god i mean god can do what god can do but because he voluntarily emptied himself that knows this from philippians 2 um you know he he laid aside his majesty as the old old song goes and uh deliberately did that in order yeah. to be like us in every way as Hebrews yeah. tells us he had to be like yeah. us that our redemption the whole story yeah. required he had to be like us in every yeah. way apart from sin right well we get near the end of your book and you pick up one of the oldest questions in human history suffering 
why do mm. we suffer? So what can give us an overview of that chapter, Steve, yeah. what you were trying to do there. Yeah. Well, I haven't got a great answer to this, mm. Jace. I haven't got the answer. In fact, throughout the book, I, I try to take the approach of saying these are ways that people look at it or you can mm. look at it. Here's what I found most helpful. And why there is evil and suffering in the world is, is complex. Uh, our thinking on it has to be quite nuanced. And I think a lot of it comes down to something we touched on a little earlier, which is what we think God is like. Um, because when when stuff goes wrong in life, uh, it's very, very easy to blame God and say, why, didn't, why did you let this happen, make this happen? Why didn't you stop this happening? And I think it's there we have to kind of say, well, we've got to have some trust in it. You know, we've got to have some trust in God and say, I believe you to be this sort of a God. I believe these to be your characteristics, mm. to be what you're like. And however bad this stuff looks, I have to believe that somehow you are there in it and you're there with me in it. And yeah. that in the course of time, and, and one of the things I suggested, we have a, a future informed mm. view rather than just a present informed yeah. view. Um, we, we look backwards on, what's happening now from the point of view of, of God's plans for the future, Revelation 21, where there will be no more crying and mourning or, or, or tears or pain. And just various ways, I think that in that chapter, I'm encouraging us to maybe find things that are helpful in ways of looking yeah. at it, but I don't have the answer because I think there isn't. A, that is the big question. Yeah, yeah, I don't yeah. think there is an easy answer. Yeah, and without, without, yeah, without jumping to a conclusion, I mean, I, I just again encourage people if they're struggling with that question to read your book but you know you you, you pick up quite clearly that you know it, it's normal to ask god about suffering it's part of mm. being a, a normal person and any spirituality and the bible's full of that god why why is this happening i'm in distress i don't mm. like this um but then there's god god stretches people through the stories that we read into you go mm. well there is suffering so how do we live within it um and jesus supremely has a place within that to make meaning of our suffering and like you say to to locate mm. ourselves in you know what this is back to the beginning what story are we living for um yeah yeah absolutely and, and you know some other things on that mm. i mean jesus was the god who came to suffer with yeah. us you know jesus came amongst other reasons, in order that no one could ever say to God, you wouldn't know what it's like to be me. Yeah. You wouldn't know what it's like to have to live my life because Jesus did yeah. that. And, and you know, that, that we have a, a, a Jesus in heaven. We have a God in heaven. We have a, a man, dare I say, in heaven, who is our, uh, the right hand of the Father, interceding mm -hmm. for us, advocating yeah. for us, who understands exactly yeah. what it's yeah. And can identify it with us in every mm. way. You know, the, you, you mentioned that the Bible asking that question, which, which it does repeatedly. And of course, that's where we get lament yeah. from. Lament is a is a genre, is a part of uh, of scripture. And then, you know, we will see also within probably the, the the biggest character in the New Testament, other than Jesus, mm. Paul. We see Paul suffering. Yeah. We see Paul asking the question, yeah. "Why?" Yeah, we do. We do. Well, last chapter of your book, you finish with issues of original context and interpretation, which you sort of done at the beginning of the book and then through the book. So what were you trying to do at this point at the end of the book of, of bringing those up? Were you, doing, were you trying to repeat something or do Ooh. something extra? Um, because you, you're focusing on some, you, you know, some 
cultural issues. You really get down to here are the big things and here are the concepts and here's the way to think of it. And by the time we get to the end, we do this work on these difficult topics. But you land again with 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 contextual issues and interpretation. So what's that about at the end of the book, Steve? Yeah, well, I wanted to put it in the middle of the book and my editor wanted to put it at the end of the book. So oh, okay. you, you could have, it could have gone either, either place. Yeah. But basically, um, you know, we, we, we talked early on in this conversation about the importance of the, the meaning of the text mm. and the meaning of the text starts with what it meant yeah. then. Okay. However, the way that we, we work with Scripture and God works mm. with us with Scripture actually is often quite different to that mm. because he speaks to us us through scripture in a way that um isn't tied to that original meaning Mm. and you get preachers all the time of course who say this is what this text is is saying when in fact it never was saying Mm. what they mean and don't necessarily put it very well is that this is something that i am finding meaningful in the text god is speaking to me meaningfully through it through the holy spirit i believe and uh then quite honestly it doesn't have to work through the filter of that original meaning mm-hmm. but we have that doesn't mean we have unbridled potential meaning it means we have to look at we we, we gauge that meaning slightly differently yeah. and i suggest that we do that through uh what i would call biblical theology in other words what does scripture as a whole mm-hmm. say what do we know god to be like yeah. across the yeah. piece as opposed to coming up with the text through that individual mm-hmm. verse coming it from biblical theology downwards yeah. is this meaning consistent mm. with scripture rather than just up through the text itself mm. in terms of original meaning brilliant so lastly steve anything else about the book you want to say for anyone who's listening um well i think uh, thus saith the lord by the book would probably be <laughs> what's mostly on my heart uh now I, I guess what i want people to do is actually i don't really particularly want people to agree with me on everything that, you know, this, that's not the the world that I live in where people have to agree. I don't like preachers who tell you how it's supposed to be. And this is what you have to think and believe. Mm. Uh, I'd much rather say, look, this is, these are the options or these are the issues. Uh, these are the challenges. This is what I'm suggesting. And this is why, um, but think about it yourself and just make sure you don't say, well, can't be, must be, let's think it through. And, and and engage with it theologically, get your friends together, have a chat about it, and um, yeah, and don't and don't use proof texts as the basis of your uh, yeah. your views. Think about it theologically. Brilliant. So again, for anyone who's listening, got to this point. If you are trying to make sense of the Bible, want to read it well, know what it is, what it's not, and how to love it again, uh, go to your favourite book purchasing place of choice. So this this is available at. Amazon, is that right, Steve? All, all of the yeah, like yeah, that. and the publishers. You can go to the publishers' website as well. But yeah, start. and if people just Google you, Stephen S T E P H E N Burn Hope B U R N H A P E, and I'll put a link, Steve, um, the Amazon link to uh, in the show notes um, for the video and the audio. And is there anywhere else people can find more from you if they want to read? more of your stuff or listen to some of your you talked about church teachings in particular people might want to listen into some of those talks that you've made yeah and there's going to be some stuff very very shortly on the vineyard website vineyard uk yeah. uh, website there's um some old stuff somewhere um uh, from aylesbury vineyard the aylesbury vineyard website although i'm not in control of that anymore so i can't be sure exactly how much is there and, and so on 
Uh, and I've also got an occasional blog, uh, occasional to my shame, I should do it more often, uh, called talkingofgod.com. Okay, great. And again, I'll get links to all those things, and they'll be underneath, or if you're listening, they'll be on the, on the link for the recording. So thank you for everyone who's listened to this in part or in full and steve thanks again for being with me today and uh, thanks again for all your all the work that went i mean the labor of love this is that your life as a christian decades in a church all that study and learning and all that teaching and speaking and, and it just really is just want to say thank you to you for producing something i found it personally incredibly helpful and i'm going to be asking everyone i know to read it thank you so uh thank you for listening um, if you want to catch more of these articles and podcasts, everything is on my website, jasonswanclark.org. That's jasonswanclark, all one word, noeonclark.org. And uh, on there, you'll be able to subscribe to uh, an email newsletter and to push updates to you for new articles um, and all the recordings. Also, you can subscribe to this audio podcast in Spotify, SoundCloud, and iTunes, and wherever else you catch your podcasts from. Um, and lastly, thank you for listening. And if you found this helpful, please like and do share with others. 